News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about how some small businesses are faring during this pandemic. We know it has been rough. And now the Canadian Federation of Independent Business has a better idea of just how rough it is out there. They surveyed more than 100,000 of their members. To talk more about that, we're joined now by Dan Kelly, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. Dan, thanks for being back with us. Happy to be with you. So that survey that you did, out of those businesses, how many would you say are, are seeing kind of normal sales volumes? Gosh, it's it's perilously low. 30% of our members are making normal sales volumes. That number hasn't budged a bit in the last month or two. Uh, that means 70% of businesses are underwater. Uh, and, and many of them are saying that they're losing money. Most of them are saying that they're losing money every day that they are open. Some are saying that it's getting worse right now, not getting better. So only 30% out of 110,000 say they're doing normal levels of business. Yeah. I mean, look, if you think about the average restaurant, retail store, uh, the the service sector businesses, many of them are, are not even able to serve as many customers as they did in the past because, of course, the need for, for ongoing physical distancing. In other cases, it's just consumers staying home. And that's, you know, that's particularly true right now with the fears of a second wave. We've, yeah. we've seen many businesses reporting a further drop in sales. It was already pretty bad over the summer, but a further drop in sales because, A, we're moving into colder weather and people are out just less. And, and second, because people are starting to stay home once again. They're hunkering down yeah. on the advice of public health officials that, uh, you know, we really shouldn't be out. So given that, that you've got so many businesses who are kind of underwater, as you say, at this point, how are they staying afloat? Is it with the government supports and help? Yeah, look, there, there are some government support programs that have started to deliver. The wage subsidy has been helpful for the last number of months. Uh, the CBA loans that uh, businesses were able to take out at the beginning helped a few. Uh, a handful got some rent support. We're, we're pleased that the government has, has finally agreed to a better program starting for the month of October. Unfortunately, that's not going to be delivering any cash until probably into November. So while there are some improvements in some of the government support programs, which will help, uh, you know, the cash can't come fast enough. And right now, one of the things that I worry about a great deal is that there are rent bills still outstanding from April, May, June uh, that, that didn't get paid. And those are like anchors around the necks of business owners dragging them down. That's like the deferral, right? That they still they still have to pay back. Yeah, tons of businesses were able to defer expenses. And that's why we haven't seen bankruptcy numbers just yet shoot up. Uh, but that's going to come to an end as businesses have kind of exhausted any savings or, or money that they could borrow, any bills that they could defer. That, you know, those things are time limited and most governments have not renewed that. British Columbia did come up uh, with a, a new program that, that we're optimistic about. Uh, so it's not like all the government support programs are, have, been, have been poorly designed. The challenge, though, is is that, you know, there still are tons of businesses slipping through the cracks that are reporting to me that they've got zero support from any of them. So what, when you say that you're still not seeing the numbers of bankruptcies or businesses closing, like what numbers are you keeping an eye on in the next month or two, Dan, to see how things develop? Well, official bankruptcy rates, uh, you know, they can't go forever without without that being noticed. And I expect that we'll start to see those numbers pick up. 
There's also a ton of businesses still just winding down. You know, a veteran business owner that's been running the business for 20, 30 years is sort of been saying, well, at some point I'm going to need to retire. And, and then many of them are saying, you know what, this is, this is a sign. I guess I better, I get to wrap it up. That has a huge impact because every, behind every one of those decisions, it's not just a family that may have depended on that business for its source of income but also a whole bunch of employees that have depended on that for a source of jobs, the community that's depended on that business for a source of community contributions, support things, and hospital fundraisers. It has a huge impact on this, and that's one of the reasons why we're just really, really urging consumers to try to support the small independent businesses in their neighborhoods. I know it's tempting, especially with the weather being cooler and the second wave numbers ticking up a bit Mm -hmm. to say, you know what, let me just order everything on Amazon uh, these days. But if we all do that, we're not going to have these businesses when COVID is over uh, to, to start to visit again. You know, what's been amazing about so many of these local businesses that I've noticed is how they've been, how they have able, been able to pivot uh, during all of this. So you can go pick up, you know, for the same amount of time it would take you to wait for that, you know, mail order from Amazon, you could go pick it up curbside at a local business probably. You're absolutely right. And and even, you know, so many businesses have been hustling to set up their own website. If you visited a business and you don't think that they're online, give them a call or check online to make sure that that's the case before you just, you know, empty your cart at Amazon. Uh, You know, make sure that you, you are seeing if they have some safer options if you're nervous to get out there. And remember, you know, going into a small independent, in my in my view, is a far better way uh, than actually going to one of the big box stores to get your groceries and to buy all your Christmas presents at the same time. For goodness sakes, a lot of these small independents are lucky to have five customers in an entire day. So there's plenty of room in most of them to physically distance and do so safely. Um, And small firms can attend to these things better because they sure don't want to risk losing any customers right now. Well, this is good advice for people to remember in the months ahead. Dan, thanks so much for your time. Anytime. That's Dan Kelly, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses, wanting to remind people to remember your local business right now because they are hurting those small businesses out there. They surveyed 110,000 members across the country. Only about 30% are experiencing and reporting normal sales volumes right now. So if you can buy something at your local business instead of ordering it online from somewhere else, Dan is saying, please do that. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's say good morning to our Nikki Reitmeyer. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. I had one of those funny experiences this weekend. You know when you drive through your old neighborhood, a, a place you used to live for years? I love doing and that. Yeah, when you haven't seen it for a while, isn't it funny to drive through where you used to live, where you used to go to school, you know, where you used to shop and see how much everything's changed. Oh, I love doing that. Like, so I go through Cloverdale every once in a while and that's where I grew Mm. up. Uh, I spent 20 years living in Ladner. So I like going through Ladner every once in a while because so much has changed in those places, you know? Oh, absolutely. I used to live off of Scott Road. So driving up Scott Road, you go, oh, that's crazy. Okay, you know, yeah. exactly. Okay, well, you know, that Denny's used to be there. And yeah, the IHOP, that's been there for ages. But okay, that place that had the, the railway car out front, that place is gone now. <laughs> and I used to live closer down towards Scott Road uh, and 64th. Wait so a minute. I'm that- sorry. Are you telling me the place with the railway car is gone? It used to be the Owl and the Engineer restaurant that's gone? Yes. 
That was the name of it. I couldn't. Re- it's gone. The, the railway car is gone. I drove unless oh. I was at the wrong intersection. But it's across the street from the or um, across yeah from the IHOP, right? Uh, that's what I remember when I was a kid. Yeah, it was such a big that's treat to go too. eat there. I know, and I used to love driving past it, even just for the novelty of it as a little kid. You go, oh, look at the railway car. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to break the bad news Times to change, you. I guess. God. Times change. I know. <laughs> it, you know, it is funny, though, because there's so many places where, you know, I understand they're gone because it makes business sense for new businesses to move in there. But, True. you know, even driving past 64th and Scott, there's so many places where I'd go, oh, you know, I remember going here as a kid, and now it's no longer, and it's kind of disappointing. I mean the uh, the video store for me instantly. Oh, classic, I thought, right? There used to be a video store in that complex, and now it's it's like a bank or something. Now way more boring than the video store. We used to have these great memories going there as a kid. It was a big and deal. You'd go with your parents. You're oh, it was a huge deal on a Friday night to go rent a movie. It was fun. I can still tell you where every big movie, like video store was that I had to go to as a kid, like no matter where I lived, (laughs) I still vividly remember. I remember when the Blockbuster opened in Ladner and that was a really big deal. And I know that Blockbuster is kind of marking an anniversary today because the company (laughs) hardly exists. But today is the 35th anniversary of the opening of the first Blockbuster video in Dallas, Texas. Wow, is it seriously 35 years ago? Isn't it funny? 35 years ago, Blockbuster started, it became this huge cultural sensation, and now 35 years later, completely gone. gone. It, the mistakes that that company made, though, right? Like it was, they, they, those late fees drove people crazy. Remember, mm. like that was just nuts. You were always so worried about being late. In fact, the the guy who started and launched Netflix, Reed Hastings, did it because he tried to return Apollo 13 to his blockbuster. Turns out he was late and they charged him $40. And he was so mad about that. He ended up founding <laughs> Netflix, which essentially put blockbuster out of business. I love an entrepreneurial story like that when people do something out of spite. Fine, yeah. I'm going to go start my own multi-billion dollar company instead. Yeah, I remember those late fees and the panic of having oh, to get yeah, your right? movie back to the video rental store. Mom would pull up in the minivan and she'd you know drop you off right in front and say, go go run this into the box and you have to slide it into the sort of mail slot out front to get the movie back in time. Um, then they did that no late fees. They advertised yeah, but that was a their lie. big... And it was a lie, and they got sued for it, I think. They were taken to court because people were still getting charged late fees despite this huge advertising campaign, this big slogan that they had, no late fees. And, of course, that was all a lie as Technically, well. it wasn't a late fee. They were just charging you another day for the movie. So that's what they were trying to say is that, oh, it's not a late fee, but if you're keeping it for another day, then we're going to charge you for another day. Oh, well, exactly, on. right? So uh, the challenge always if you went there on a Friday night was to get there at a good time. Mm-hmm. To make sure that you could rent something good. Because there was nothing like going to Blockbuster, excited to watch like the new movie that came out that week. And then finding their entire wall of new releases was like <laughs> yes. gone already, right? Yes, I vividly remember that. Walking into the movie store, here we go, <laughs> you're all excited to get Titanic. And then looking at that wall and it's nothing empty. but the case. Exactly. And there's no movie behind that case for you to grab that empty case. Oh, isn't that so funny though, eh? So 35 years ago today day the very first blockbuster video was opened essentially they're all gone now but i was reading that in ontario there's a fellow who has started a petition to try to get his local former blockbuster video 
turned into a museum. So, you know, somewhat really? similar to the experience that I had this weekend. Yeah, there was a blockbuster in his neighborhood and it closed down, although, you know, mine's been turned into a bank for many, many years. But his, I suppose, still has the blockbuster sign out front. It still looks like the shell of a blockbuster video. So he said, look, we're in a small town here in Ontario in Owen Sound, Georgian Bluffs. He said, let's turn this blockbuster video into a heritage site. You know? So, yeah, why I think not? He's right? just, well, if it, yeah, it's a small town. I would like, if you were driving through there and you saw a blockbuster museum, wouldn't you stop there and say, I got to go inside and see this place? I actually would, even Me in the too. petition. He says this historic building, this historic building could provide some much needed tourism and economic growth to the area for Owen Sound and all of Grey Bruce. He says that I know I stop in and reminisce from time to time like so many of us do. I would totally do that. I'm shocked, though, that it hasn't turned into something else like a Starbucks or a Tim Hortons at this point. But given that it hasn't, absolutely, it should be preserved. That's the I would stop there. They could sell T-shirts. People would buy those, right? Absolutely, they could. I mean, the fact that it's still preserved as a blockbuster, I think, reflects how poorly the economy must be doing in that small town. So uh, why not turn it into a blockbuster video and and reminisce a little bit more? The the, uh, petition was hoping to get a thousand signatures. There were well over a thousand. Now they're at 1500 signatures. Nice. All right. Thanks for that, Nikki. Thanks, Simi. You want to reminisce about your blockbuster days? Go ahead. You can email me, Simi at cknw.com. We're checking in with Von Palmer when we come back. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about how everyone's mental health is doing during the pandemic, right? It was, it's been the discussion for a long time, but I think one of the key aspects of it that maybe doesn't get talked enough about is that stigma around loneliness. A lot of social isolation that's going on, but is it still okay for people to say, you know, put your hands up and say, I'm lonely. I could use a little socialization. I could use a little help with that. Well, that's something we're going to talk about this morning with the help of Candace Hartman, who is helping out with from October the 29th to the 24th, uh, a national walk and talk called Beyond the Conversation. And Candace is the Director of National Development for that and joins us. Candace, thanks for being here. Good morning, Sammy. Thank you for having us. Now, tell me about the ways in which, you know, you're trying to end this stigma around loneliness. Well, Beyond the Conversation is a grassroots nonprofit society, and we've been working for the past five years to try and do exactly that. Uh, And we do it primarily by trying to strengthen community through friendship. Okay. In what ways? Well, we, uh, we host uh, Open Talk Cafes, which have gone uh, virtual, of course, as required now. We have workshops, uh, forums, and uh, various events. And as you alluded, we, this is our third annual walkathon uh, starting today. Uh, and the goals of that, is, as you mentioned, are not only to highlight the issue, but to destigmatize loneliness. Uh, it is so prevalent in our society um, being highlighted, of course, by the social distancing that's necessitated now, but it has been growing for many, many right. years. Is it hard for people, Candace, to admit that they're feeling lonely? I think so. I, and I think it's getting easier now, though. Uh, the Global News, in fact, you, you uh, had a report in April. Uh, the Ipsos Reid did a survey saying that 54% of Canadians, and that was last April, are now feeling uh, isolated and lonely. Uh, it, it's prevalent in every sector of society from, and in fact, mm-hmm. I was surprised to learn that the younger generation, those between 18 and 34, 
are being impacted very hard by this. I think the numbers, and I'm fairly confident, are 64% are reporting feeling isolated and lonely. So, yes, it it used to be, I think, um, seen as perhaps a personal failing, erroneously. I think it's a function of of the way our society is developing. But now, more and more people are speaking out. And this is a wonderful thing to see, because that's how you need to start the conversation. And so where can people online find out more information about what you're doing to try to help? Beyondtheconversation.ca. We have uh, pretty much everything there. Um, If this is a topic you want to learn more about, I would hope you will join this walkathon. We're holding a concluding ceremony on October 24th uh, between 1 and 2.30 p.m. All the uh, information is on our website. There will be a number of speakers uh, addressing this topic from many perspectives, youth, seniors, disabled people, Mm -hmm. the general population, and also personal people coming forward and telling their stories. All right. Well, Candace, thank you for sharing that with us this morning. Well, I'm, I'm very grateful that you took the time to listen. Thank you, Simi. That's Candace Hartman. For more information, you can check out beyondtheconversation.ca. But essentially, they are working to try to end the stigma around loneliness. Now, if you recognize that, you think, yeah, I've been feeling lonely, then check out their website for more information on how you can get involved. This is Mornings with Simi. About a year or so ago, a surprising thing happened at Vancouver City Council the councillors actually agreed on something. And it was a nice thing too. Vancouver Council about a year ago backed a proposal that would allow uh, BC veterans license plate holders and serving members of the Canadian Forces to park for free year round at city meters and city parking lots. And so, you know, great idea. They said, hey, let's, let's take a look at this. We like this. They sent it to staff. Well, in the last week or so, the report came back from staff and staff advised against it. And not only that, was pushing to reduce the few parking perks that are already in place for veterans. This is generating a lot of discussion about how is it this could happen. So joining us now is Lieutenant Colonel Archie Stacey, founding president of the BC Veterans Commemorative Association. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Uh, good morning, Simi. I'm pleased to be here. Well, I'm glad that you could join us to kind of talk a little bit more about this. So where is it right now that veterans do get some free parking? Uh, the, the, uh, in Vancouver City, uh, the, the only time that I know of is Veterans Week, which is about the 4th or 5th to the 11th of November. And so veterans are allowed to park free during that period of time in the city of Vancouver at their various parking meters and and lots and that sort of thing. Well, that's nice. So all you have to do is have, you have to have the veterans license plate. Is that right? Yes. The uh, standard BC veterans license plate, you know, the blue background and the maple leaf and the soldiers marching on and and the numbers, of course, that's that's what's required. It's very simple to see and very easy to see, yes. Right, so all you have to do is take a look and say, oh, that's a veteran there. Uh, now, yes. how, how long have we had those license plates? Well, actually, we, we uh, established the Veterans License Plate Program uh, in, in uh, January 2004 with, with uh, former Premier Gordon Campbell. And, uh, and then we, we actually dedicated, uh, we designed the plate and the eligibility, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, dedicated the plate on the 4th of July, or 4th of June, rather, uh, 2004. So we've been at it for 16 years now. And do we know how many people have one of those license plates? Well, the the, the total the total number of 
of applications uh, that were approved uh, are up in the vicinity of 57 to 58,000, but I'm not just positive the exact number. Okay. Uh, but that's how many were have been approved over, over those years. But, of course, you know, it, it, you must realize that uh, initially the the uh, original applications or the, or the first applications were many, many Second World War veterans, uh, Korea veterans, right. and peacekeepers, etc., and and so after 16 years, most of those people have, have either deceased or they've stopped driving for health reasons or whatever. And so, so the number is not anywhere near that anymore, no. So when you heard that Vancouver City Council thought this would be a good idea to provide free parking, you must have thought, hey, this is a nice idea. Yes, we, we did. We were delighted to hear that and, and uh, just thrilled that, that our service would be recognized in this way. Yeah, we're, the veterans were very, very pleased. I, I had many, many, many phone calls and emails sent to me saying, that's really wonderful. You know, it was just super. Thanks to the city of Vancouver. You know. Are you a little concerned that it's not going to happen now, given that staff came back and said we shouldn't be doing this? Yeah, we're, we're very, very, very disappointed. And, and as I, I said the other day, I was, I was quite enraged when I heard it because, because mayor and council <clears throat> had, had unanimously agreed uh, to, to, to propose this. And send it off to off to staff to to implement it. And of course, the reverse has happened. Yeah, and Archie, let's be honest. It's not very often that Vancouver City Council unanimously agrees on anything. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Yeah, that's true, I guess. But 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 any, but the the other thing too is that the, 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 I guess the the thing that really hurt us was was most was was the fact that they the staff indicated that they were going to uh, lose uh, about I think it was two million dollars in, in in revenue. And, and they, they made this statement and, and some other statements around it, apparently, and at, with no substantiation whatsoever. And, and I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just nonsense to, to think that they're going to lose $2 million. Because if, if, if you had all, all 58,000 veterans driving into Vancouver, I don't know how many days, years, or months it would take them to reach that kind of money. So, so it's really absurd to think that it would cost the city's going to lose $2 million. Because, you know, the, the other side of the coin... Is, is that, that the city has and, and, this, and the staff members have completely forgotten or neglected or didn't think of the fact that, that if veterans come into town from outside outside areas mm-hmm. where, where the greater, greater, greater majority of, of license plates are, that, that there would be an economic boom. Yeah. You know, people come in to go to theaters, they come in to go to dining, and they visit friends or they go shopping. So, so there's, there's a benefit uh, for 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 small businesses in 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 the city of Vancouver, and, and and they've ignored that fact. So, what would be your message then to the city of Vancouver on this? My message to the city of Vancouver. Well, as far as I'm concerned, and I know other veterans that I've spoken to, and I've spoken to an awful lot in the last while, they all say that uh, the Marin Council unanimously adopted this uh, free parking for veterans. And they sent it off to count or to staff to implement it, and they didn't do that. And so there's no parking as far as they're concerned. So our our feeling is implement the program immediately. We'll see what happens. We're going to keep an eye on this too. So I'm sure we'll be talking to you in the next couple of weeks. Archie, thanks for being with us. Oh, you're most welcome. Thanks for asking me.
Oh, anytime. That is Lieutenant Colonel Archie Stacey. He is the founding president of the BC Veterans Commemorative Association. Not at all happy, as you can hear, with what has been going on at Vancouver City Council. Not because of council. Council actually unanimously agreed on something. That's impressive. And they agreed on it a year ago. They said, hey, let's give our veterans free parking all the time, not just for the week and days leading up to Remembrance Day. They said, yes, let's do this. Sent it off to staff to say, help us implement this. Staff a year later comes back and says, no, we don't think this is a good idea. We're going to lose too much money. It doesn't align with our priorities. We don't think it should happen. Well, no, that's not how things work. Council said, let's do this, not what, what do you guys think? And so now there's a lot of controversy over, like, who's actually running things down there at Vancouver City Hall? So, you know what, we're going to talk more about this uh, because it does seem quite outrageous that something like that would happen. And if the parking doesn't happen now, does that mean that Vancouver City Council is just toothless? Yeah, we'll be talking more about it. You can weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi become one of the more disturbing aspects of this BC election campaign. The number of candidates who said that they have been, you know, the subject of racist slurs, whether it's on their signs or having people yell things at them. It's very disturbing. One of the latest incidents that we've heard about involves our next guest, actually, the BC Liberal candidate for Saanich South, that would be Rishi Sharma, who joins us now. Good morning and thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. I'm very glad to be on your show. Thank well, you. Well, gl- glad to talk about this because I feel like you need to raise awareness about stuff like this. Just quickly tell us what happened, Rashid, that brought this to your attention. Uh, well, my, my sign team and I were out Saturday night just testing signs. Um, it was very windy, so a lot of them were blown over. And one of them was actually, uh, the frame was still standing, but one of the signs was taken. A four by uh, four by four sign, four, people, four foot by four foot sign was taken. So I, I don't know who has it. I made a video of that as well, saying, hey, keep it. It's, it's a gift from the Rishi Sharma campaign. Just treat it well. And uh, we were putting up some signs, and as we were doing it, someone rolled up uh, in their vehicle. I think they were trying to take their dog for a walk. They had a big Malibu dog, and then he uh, just got up, and I just assumed he wanted to talk policies. So I made my way over to talk to him as the team uh, continued to put the signs up. And then I very quickly realized he didn't want to talk policy. He just wanted to... He just wanted to throw right. throw hate. Yeah. And Rishi, has that ever happened to you before? Uh, in in an election, no. Uh, personally, yeah, yeah, it, it it does happen. You know, but I've I've played a lot of sports. It happened in sports often. I was a construction right. worker. I was an iron worker, and I worked built high rises downtown east side. Just you know, just kind of different different environments. And it happens often. It happens to me. It happens to my brother. It, it's nothing that uh, it doesn't face me really anymore, which is. Uh, which That's is, the sad part, is, right? That's the sad part about it. If it doesn't phase you anymore yeah. when this happens. But you said that what happened was that it actually phased the people who are working on your campaign. This, Yeah, so yeah, this was a very interesting thing for me. So my brother and I, when it happened, we, as we do, we put a smile on our face. Thank you very much. Please go away. Uh, we don't want to deal with it. Well, when the team finally found out what was actually happening, and he wasn't talking about um, policies, he was throwing these these angry comments about you know Indo-Canadians, Estonians, you're dumb. Um, Stephen, who's uh, who's who's come uh, has come from Alberta to help me on my team. We've known each other for 20 years. He's like, hold on a second. You know, his ears finally got attuned to what was happening, and he stood up tall, you know, a little bit aggressive, and said, "Hey, what's going on here?" And I think that's what made the gentleman actually stop, get in his car, and then eventually drive away. 
with with his girlfriend or mom. I didn't know who it was. And then so we quickly decided to put it on video. Right. Because I was like, wow, look at the reaction of, of these guys. Uh, another John Turisic, another, you know, 50-plus uh, male, uh, Taylor, a millennial, uh, working on my team, and Steven. And, and you could just see in the video, please check it out. It's on Rishi Sharma for, for Santa Stone's Facebook page. You could see their shock, uh, dismay, anger, and then eventually so, regret. So, like, not when you challenged them, but when they were challenged yeah. by somebody who looked like them. Exactly. Exactly. I didn't think he even saw that they were there. Look, we, we have a very diverse group on, on uh, in Center South and our team. My people of LGBTQ, hmm. uh, millennials, uh, interracial marriages, myself, Punjabi, people with disabilities, some with Parkinson's. Like, so we're constantly having these conversations. Right. But even then, with us talking about it and trying to build awareness about equity and diversity, even then, like the, those four team members, they were shocked. They couldn't yeah. believe that this was happening to them. And I was like, well, it's just another day. Yeah. And Rishi, unfortunately, you're not the only candidate that has seen this. You know, you're a BC Liberal candidate. We've heard of an NDP candidates as well. Uh, candidates from all parties, if they are of a different background, mm-hmm. seem to have experienced something like this. Did you, did you, and I hate to use this word, but did you expect that would happen during the campaign at some point? Is it just the sad reality? It's not something that I prepared for. I did prepare for the other types of um, uh, derogatory comments that you'll get on Twitter and Facebook. It, it's, it's unbelievable what people feel, think that they can say to oh, you. Oh, I know, yes. Uh, apparently, I'm going to kill every child in British Columbia, or I'm going to uh, uh, ruin the environment because I'm with a particular party. It's ridiculous what they feel that they can say, the hate that they can throw out there. And But so my dad, he, he continuously told me every day, listen, son, Stay calm. This is going to come at you. It's going to come at every every right. candidate. Uh, just stay calm and and you know keep that smile on your face and move forward. And that's what I've been doing. We've been trying to do that. So I didn't really expect the racial slurs uh, to come in that in that manner. So it was it, it was shocking to me. But again, I did what I did what I needed to do. Just kind of you know right. you know tuck 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 and roll or yeah. turtle because I don't want this thing to escalate because it can escalate. It can get very dangerous. No, it can for sure. Listen, Rishi, thank you for telling your story this morning. Thank you, and I also want to say thanks to you uh, for that Champion Award segment, and you and you actually offered an award to a good friend of mine, Donna Grant, for our oh. equity and diversity work we were doing. So it was it was fantastic. Well, thanks. there you go. If you ever want to nominate somebody, you know where to find us. Okay. There you go. <laughs> thanks. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. That's Rishi Sharma, BC Liberal candidate for Saanich South, telling what the story of what has happened to him in terms of racist graffiti on his signs. He's not the only one. Several candidates, different parties have reported the same thing out there. It is one of the sad realities of this current election campaign and the kind of polarized feelings that people are having right now. A lot of anger out there, it seems. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, all you cat lovers out there, you're going to want to hear this next segment. There's an organization that is planning a cat food drive, and they need your help. So joining us now to talk more about this is Lubna Ekramadula, the program manager of the Surrey Community Cat Foundation. Lubna, thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me on your show. You know, it's not often we get to talk about cats, so we thought, why not? Yeah, that's great. Thanks for the opportunity. So what is it that you need help with? We need help with collecting um, uh, cat food donations. So we do try and collect donations all year round, but um, we just had Global Cat Day, which celebrates all cats. And we thought it would be a perfect opportunity to um, remind people that we're looking for um, cat food donations. 
um, the, the food goes to um, feed stray and abandoned cats, as well as helping low-income uh, pet owners feed their cats. How much of an issue are stray and abandoned cats? Um, like any big city in Canada, it's it's a it's actually quite a big um, uh, problem in Surrey, and um, our organization works to rescue abandoned and stray cats, um, uh, feed them, and most of them are actually tame and adoptable. So we transfer them to our partners that um, can adopt them out. Um, but the other issue is uh, we try and um, address the source of the problem, which is um, unspayed and neutered cats, which are um, reproducing. So we have a spay-neuter program for pet owners who can't afford to do that. Is that fairly common? It is. Um, we are busy all the time, even. Um, and of course, this year we've had um, an increase in owners who have lost their job due to COVID and, and need that extra help. Um, we're, we're busy, uh, you know, every day, every month, people are applying to get their um, cats fixed. And, um, and that's what we like to see is, um, you know, those are responsible pet owners who know that um, not only are they preventing unwanted litters, but it also helps improve the health of their pets. Like, how often do you get calls that people have found kind of kittens? Um, we usually have a, a, a wait list for, uh, for, for generally stray cats. Um, but when there are kittens or a pregnant mom, um, those are a priority. And our volunteer trappers are out day and night. Sometimes it can take hours um, in the middle of the night trying to uh, trap, the, trap these kittens and their mom to get them into safety. Oh, man, that's a lot of work. Then I, find, I feel Luna, like people really underestimate this when it comes to cats. I, I, they do. And I think, you know, the reason is because um, a lot of people think that cats can fend for themselves outdoors. Um, yeah. And also, um, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're sly. They, they're not out in the open. So people don't see them on the street. Um, you know, they're, they're hiding and often our trappers, um, have to crawl into crevices and, and, you know, old, uh, sheds and buildings looking for these kittens. Um, so it's not always, uh, obvious to the general public that there are, there are a lot of cats out there. We, um, with our rescue partners, we probably, uh, rescue about 2,000 cats, um, a year. Wow. And that doesn't even, you know, that's, that doesn't even include the ones that um, are still out there because we're always at capacity, so we can't even trap uh, anymore. I think you're so right, though. It's that perception that dogs need us, right? That they, they right. wouldn't be able to manage without us, whereas cats have that personality and that impression of being indifferent to us. Exactly. You know, it's... it's uh, uh, and, and unfortunately, because there's um, a lot of uh, low um, pet-friendly housing, not only in Surrey, but, but you know, in BC, in Canada in general, that when, when owners have to move, a lot of them just, you know, leave their pets behind. And it's a sad situation. Um, and, you know, we're, we're us and our, our partners are the ones that uh, find these cats and, and are trying to rehome them. But if we can get cats to be spayed and neutered by five months, um, that will be a, a um, significant impact on reducing the number of strays that we find outdoors. All right. So where can we get more information about this or, or give you some help? So you can go to surreycats.ca um, um, and we have a how you can help tab. And there's a, there's a lot of ways uh, to help us. Um, so this week we're focusing on um, food donations that can be uh, dropped off at uh, Clayton Critter's. 
Mother Hubbard's and Newman Animal Feeds. And um, we also do it all year round. Um, so, you know, encourage the public to um, check out all the other locations uh, where they can donate food. And do you have a message to people then who haven't ha- haven't managed to, like, get their cat spayed or neutered? Uh, please do it. Go to our website. There's an application link right on the web uh, website on the homepage. And um, also just, you know, think about your, your cats. We're here to help you and we want to help you. All right. Lubna, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. And best of luck. That is Lubna Ekramadula, who's the program manager of the Surrey Community Cat Foundation. And they need your help right now. So check out their website if you can help them out. They are surreycats.ca. They are looking for cat food. Uh, they're just looking for help in general to deal with a fairly large abandoned and feral cat population out there. Uh, in Surrey in particular, but really a problem all over Metro Vancouver. So if you can help them out, check it out. Surrey Cats. Still ahead for us on the show this morning, lots for us to talk about. This is Mornings with Simi. Now that's the sound of a rally that was held in Halifax yesterday. Crowd estimates of around a thousand people who gathered to show solidarity with the Mi'kmaq fishers after a violent confrontation on Saturday. And quite frankly, violence that we've been hearing about for the last week or so. What is going on there with the fishing rights in Nova Scotia? What has led to this? Well, joining us now is Constance McIntosh, the Viscount Bennett Professor of Law at the Schuller School of Law at Dalhousie University. Constance, thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for inviting me, Cindy. Now, in BC, we're quite used to talking about treaty rights and fishing, but is this something that doesn't get as much discussion, perhaps, in Atlantic Canada? Yeah, so we've got a really different sort of um, treaty history here in Nova Scotia. So the, the treaties that were um, entered into were back in the 1700s and 1600s, and they were all treaties of, of peace and friendship. So they were basically about the Mi'kmaq people agreeing to, um, you know, not kill settlers, um, in return for which, the, you know, the British were putting a whole bunch of terms on the table to, to try to create peace. And one of those key pieces was that um, the British agreed that the settlers were not going to get in the way of the Mi'kmaq people as they hunted and as they fished. And in particular, they were going to engage in trade, so commercial trade with Mi'kmaq people. And part of why the British wanted to do that was because they were trying to displace the historic relationship that the Mi'kmaq had with the French, right? because Britain and France right. were both sort of battling for control over here. Okay, so how has that kind of led to the situation that we find ourselves in today? Well, so what happened was um, we have this treaty, we have these agreements about commercial rights, and then just like, you know, most of the rest of Canada, um, the federal and provincial governments ignored treaty rights for for many years, um, but the Indigenous peoples didn't. So back in the 90s, Donald Marshall Jr., you know, the man who was, was wrongfully convicted right. of um, murder, he decided to go fishing out of season, catch eels and sell them um, because he said that these 19, 1760 treaties gave him the right to do so. And he went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court agreed with them. The Supreme Court said that um, these rights, they were real, they existed, 
um, and that these regulations were unlawful. That was back in 1999. Uh, We're in 2020, and there still isn't an agreement about exactly what it means that the Mi'kmaq have these rights in Nova Scotia. So So the Mi'kmaq have been waiting and trying to negotiate for a good 20 years now, um, about how to exercise those rights, you know, in light of the broader context of, you know, the fishery stock and other fishers and so forth. And it's just been so slow and sluggish that the Mi'kmaq have pretty much given up on there being a, a good, safe resolution to what those treaty rights look like. And they decided that they were going to um, regulate their own fisheries and get out there and start exercising their treaty rights. Okay. So that's where we are right now. Okay, and so I guess the words that this seem to be based on is a moderate living from fishing. Is that right? That's right. So the Supreme Court said that this this right to fish was to the extent of having a moderate livelihood, and that's been the real sticking point in the negotiations between the federal government and Mi'kmaq people. Is exactly you know how much is a moderate livelihood? Is that having you know a monster house and a cottage? Is that living in an apartment? You know, what does it mean to have a moderate livelihood? And for the most part, they just haven't reached common ground on that. And, and as I mentioned, these negotiations have been going on for a generation at this point. Right. And so now it's all come to a head where you've had this violence flare up, lots of anger, it seems like. Is, so do, is the federal government still negotiating this? Well, it looks like they're, they're coming back to the drawing board pretty pretty quickly these days. So I'm, I'm heartened by the fact that there seems to be a very serious, uh, renewed interest in um, reaching uh, a mutual agreement at this point um, after things having really been in, in a terrible lull for some time. Right. So what kind of fishing was going on here? Is this, does that law apply to, that ruling, does that apply to like all fisheries, whatever they want to fish moderately? Yeah. So it's, it's fishing and it's, it's hunting um, to, to trade commercially. Um, so, yeah, so it, the, the Marshall decision was about eels, but it certainly extends to trout, salmon, um, whatever, whatever happens to be out there. That's fascinating, though, Constance, that these these rights existed then for decades and decades and decades, and only now they have become this kind of flashpoint. Yeah, so they're definitely a flashpoint. Of course, they're a flashpoint because there's also, you know, a long-standing um, uh, non-Indigenous commercial fishery present in Nova Scotia, um, and those fishers are concerned about, you know, their livelihood being adversely affected by this. Uh, but the scale under which the Mi'kmaq fishers are engaging in the uh, lobster fishery is its so small. Um, I think we've got the Seneganekiti community has um, issued 11 licenses, where each of the licenses for about 50 traps. Um, so that is such a tiny fraction of the commercial fishery. It's, it's so small scale. Right. Um, but this is the reaction on the- this isn't the end of this, though, is it? Oh, um, what do you mean? <laughs> so, like, this is—it sounds like it's just beginning. These troubles um, for the federal government to kind of step in here and do something. Well, I, I would say that there's going to be troubles if we don't see some really um, earnest and, and good faith engagement in in trying to understand. 
understand and, and reach an agreement on how these rights are going to be practiced in the, in the current moment. And, and like I said, I am really heartened by the fact that we do seem to be seeing some real movement on, mm-hmm. on the side of the federal government to get somewhere right now. Well, we hope, right? Constance, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. Oh, you're so welcome. That is Constance McIntosh, the Viscount Bennett Professor of Law at the Schuller School of Law at Dalhousie University, that is in Nova Scotia, explaining to us the background of these news stories that you are seeing an awful lot about, about what is happening in Nova Scotia right now with the Mi'kmaq and the, and, uh, the commercial fisher uh, industry out there. And lots of blame going around here on the federal government for not doing enough to negotiate this uh, in the 21 years that they've had since that original ruling came down there that Constance was talking about. So we'll be hearing more about that for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the protection of wild salmon has become the subject of the BC election campaign, and many would say it's about time. NDP leader John Horgan made a stop this past weekend in Campbell River, where he promised that if his party is re-elected, they would increase spending on protecting wild salmon. He said they're committed to doubling the financial investment that is currently offered in the $143 million BC Salmon Restoration and Innovation Fund. So, is this going to help? Joining us now to talk more about it is Bob Chamberlain, chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance. Bob, thank you for being with us. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Are you glad to hear that the you know protection of wild salmon is finally a subject in the campaign? Oh, absolutely, without question. You know, when we consider wild salmon or what it means to the uh, British Columbia economy, to the environment, to First Nations people, um, I'm really pleased to see a government that's taking meaningful steps to begin that rebuilding process uh, for wild salmon across the province. Okay, so if they double their financial investment in this fund, what will that actually do, though, Bob? Well, what it'll do is it'll bring up, it'll provide an additional, I believe it's $42 million over five years, if they choose the same time frame as the original allotment. But the way I view this, we finally see a provincial government stepping up and providing uh, significant resources. It's certainly uh, another starting point, if you like, because of the abysmal state that DFO has mismanaged the wild fishery here in British Columbia. But the money's welcome. Uh, certainly going to be able to uh, get out to, I'm hoping, and I predict it'll be throughout the whole province, which is going to be a benefit to everybody. Right. One of the other things that was suggested that they may work towards phasing out salmon farms along that um, salmon migratory route in the Broughton Archipelago. What did you think of that? Well, I think that that's a really, really good choice. Uh, there, you know, when we can refer back to Justice Cohen's report, uh, he identified many different stressors to wild salmon, and that's all very true. But we need to, at this point, look at or look at the stressors that are within reach to affect today. Because when we consider the, the DFO has come out saying there's no worries about fish farms, and then we see their top scientists making statements that are very contrary to what the official position is, it shows me that the department is in complete disarray on disease. And this is where the precautionary principle has to come into play and begin to uh, remove a very well-known stressor and killer of juvenile salmon. But uh, Bob, how do we know, though, that this will actually mean something and it won't just be more talk? Because doesn't it feel like we do an awful lot of talking about protecting wild salmon? Well, you know, that I'm not going to argue with you there. I've heard lots of talk and very little action. 
uh, from the, especially the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. We see them now continually uh, perpetuating that conflict of interest that Colin spoke of by primary responsibility is no longer wild salmon in the environment, but perpetuating and supporting the fish farm industry. But what I think about in terms of the commitment that was made by the provincial NDP, I look at the Broughton uh, Fish Farm LOU, which implemented the United Nations Declaration on Rights of Indigenous People, free prior to informed consent, replaced consultation, supported by the industry. It is a model that can be reproduced anywhere. Bob, are you getting asked a lot about what's been happening in Nova Scotia over the last week or so as well? No, yes, I have. It's uh, so disappointing, you know, and we see media, you know, rightfully so, focusing on the conflict and the tension and the mob mentality, racism towards Mi'kmaq people. But what I'm not seeing and what I'm not hearing is the fact that the federal government has had law on its desk for 21 years to make sure that this outcome isn't what was supposed to happen. And now because of their indifference, and it really makes me wonder, because after 21 years of indifference towards the Marshall ruling, we look to BC and we have the Sparrow decision, the Gladstone decision, the Ahouset decision, and none of them have produced what the Supreme Court has directed. So it makes me believe that there must be like an order in council with the minister to take a stalling tactic or make sure that there is no progress in implementing Aboriginal rights fisheries. And to me, this is such an attack on human rights. So do you think this is something now that we're all province, like BC, is also going to have to deal with? Well, it doesn't need to come to that. I mean, if the government would actually uh, live up to the honour of the Crown, as we hear from the Supreme Court so often. But, I mean, you look at the the latest actions. We have Minister uh, Jordan making sure that the fish farm industry is characterised by her government as less than minimal harm. And yet, you know, reputable organizations such as the Pacific Salmon Foundation state the absolute opposite opinion. And to me, that shows the conflict of interest is there, the tailoring of science, which I have witnessed in the Indigenous Multi-Stakeholder Advisory Body. And it is so troubling to see a federal department just gambling on something that's so critical to all of British Columbia. Well, Bob, thanks very much for talking to us about all of this today. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. It's Bob Chamberlain, chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance. He's pleased that wild salmon and protecting wild salmon have kind of made the BC election campaign over the weekend. Some discussions of different campaign promises, uh, particularly with the NDP, but also taking a moment to chat with us about what is happening in Nova Scotia as well.